there's just a huge lack of compassion. People are really lacking in the ability and skill of compassion for each other. And I think because I'm on the internet for my job, I see this constant lack of compassion and understanding of like, there's a human behind the the thing that you are screaming at right now. And you just don't even care that there's a human being there. Welcome to Mom Strength, a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as the Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this. Okay, Jason, I want to ask you a few questions. Sure. Okay, so tell me about a book or podcast that has been life-changing for you. Okay, I'll tell you one of each. So, and this is obviously just based on recency. That's okay, yeah. It doesn't have to be all time. Yeah, the the podcast I'm really into right now is the Movement Logic podcast. Um, And I have collaborated with the Movement Logic team on like two tutorials, but they launched a podcast this year. Amazing. And I, yeah, and I'm really into it. I started listening to it like a couple months ago and I was like, wow, these episodes are really good. And yeah, they interviewed me too. I will just say full disclosure, but all the other episodes, I'm like, wow, they did one on yoga and bone density. And I was like, this should be a paid workshop. Like you guys are just giving this away for free <laughs> on the internet. I honestly, I listen to so many podcasts where I'm like, this is free info. Like this is like yeah. life-changing, like some podcasts, like Oprah's or whatever. I'll be like, listening yeah. to taking all the notes. No, it's right. Like, and I'm like, I'm like so planning good. like content and I'm like, oh, this is really helping me shape some of my content or like make sure that, you know, it was great. So it's a great podcast if you're into movement science. And then the, uh, the book I would recommend which a friend recommended to me when I was pregnant is called Expecting Better by Emily Oster. And I think if you are expecting, like, yeah, all the other ones are great, whatever, but this one is all about data. It's all about like, what's the most recent up-to-date data on all of the biggest questions when it comes to pregnancy. So it's not just like tradition and, you know, guidelines that are outdated. It's like, what does the data really say? Nice. So like, I loved it. And it really helps you, again, regardless of your choices, just gives you some like information and feedback and makes you feel less anxious if you don't do things perfectly. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, and there's no perfect way, but I, I know what you mean. And also sometimes your healthcare provider doesn't have the most up-to-date info because they might've gone to school 10 years ago and like not everyone can keep up with research and data. Like there's so much information out there and research out there. So I do value like books and podcasts and even posts from people that I follow where I'm like, oh, thank you for updating me because this is useful. And like, you know, the ACOG guidelines change all the time too. So you never really know. And so what I love about, because Emily Oster's, I believe an economist who, you know, obviously has a data science background. So like then Emily talks about good data versus bad data. So when she's talking about like all the studies, it's like, yes, the, you might have read this one study that got a lot of traction in the media Any because the headline, people. 
Yeah, but the study methods weren't very good or they weren't robust or like we're looking, she will be looking at meta-analysis. Well, how does this compare to all the other studies that have been out there for a long time? And like, if we put it all together, what is the story? And so I think it's a great place to kind of just start because I had a lot of anxiety in the beginning of the, it's my first pregnancy. So I was like, oh no, am I doing it right? And like, oh, yeah. can I eat this? And can anxiety. I do that? And whatever, yeah. whatever, and all the things. And it really like, because I got informed in this way, it really helped me to like relax, chill the F out and look at the bigger picture. <laughs> I know it is, it is really hard. That first pregnancy, it's like, whoo. I was anxious about everything. And yeah. I think too, like that came out postpartum too, like the postpartum anxiety, but like doing the right thing and like, yeah. And there's a follow-up book called Crib Sheet that is also great too. Cause it's like the same thing. And from I her? think, yeah, by Emily Oster nice. too. It's, it's like what now I think with some of this information I'm able to do and like the way she writes the book too, about like meta-analysis and all that stuff is look at the big picture like really zoom out and be like, I think it's so easy to get caught in the weeds of every micro decision you have to make because everyone feels overwhelming. Like what, you know, bath stuff should I get? And you're like researching bath stuff for like hours. And like at the end of the day, you're like, my parents didn't have any of this stuff. We were fine. I don't remember getting a bath. It's like fine. It's like, now I'm like, okay, well, what are the decisions that actually matter versus like, can I zoom out and be like, this kid? Is- Listen, I was researching Fine. the crib skirt. Yeah. Not the crib sheet. The yeah, crib skirt that yeah. they'll never touch. I ha- had to be organic cotton. And I'm like, like, I feel I've grown so much from that new mom. But like, there is a transition that I think all new parents go through where you have to worry about nonsense for them to get out of that and be like, oh yeah, it didn't really matter. It's like, you have to prove to yourself that it didn't matter once your baby survives and you're like, oh, well, okay. okay. I'm trying to do that process now. And like, it's interesting because I'm- Which is you good. Know, again, you can get, it. because you can get so down the rabbit hole of stuff. And I think following people like Emily Oster, like there are other people out there too that really helped me to come out of the, like the micro- mindset of every decision and be like what's the macro what's the big takeaway here yeah I love that tell me three things that you like to do for yourself every day yeah this one was like kind of harder to be honest I'm thinking like simple like drinking a coffee like it could be any okay so I will say the one you know what because consistency I've realized is a long game in that Sometimes things don't happen every day, but they happen over the, like they're consistent over the course of weeks and months. Yeah. So like, for example, we like to do green protein smoothies in the morning, but like we ran out of greens today, so it didn't happen. It's okay. But like, you can take mine. I was going to say, no, but like, never drink it because I'm like, really? Yeah. I'm like, like I gotta, I gotta put other things in it to like hide the taste of like the greens this is what we do though so this is our bre- this is like what go- goes in yours it's very simple and sometimes we make it a little bit fancy and sometimes not so it's protein powder and the protein powder we use right now we switched because i'm pregnant so we switched for prenatal protein powder and he did it mm-hmm. with me because it's just easier yeah. um but we used to use like one that we liked but a different one that we liked before and then we do like a thing of package of like a bunch of greens and orange juice. That's it. It's simple. Keep it oh, super simple. Oh, so like actual greens. 
actual greens, not like dehydrated, whatever. That's what I have. I have a greens powder and I'm like, tastes like fish food. Not that I know what that tastes like, but like just tastes very what you imagine. Yeah. Yeah. No. So like it's pro it's normal protein powder, like whatever, pick the one you want that fits your profile, whatever. And then we do like an actual thing of greens. And like, I will just say a tip that I learned recently is if you buy those, like, you know, those giant packs of like spinach or kale, but then sometimes they like go bad by the bottom. (laughs) Yes. I found this tip. I found out this tip from like the internet and it's great. You put dry paper towel, like a layer of dry paper towel on top. And then when you store it, you store it upside down. Oh, that all the moisture goes down into the paper towel, like extra moisture. And so like, and it's not all just like moldy and wilty as quickly. Yeah, exactly. So we do like a bunch of greens and protein powder and orange juice because it makes it taste good. And like, it's, you know, you need energy in the morning and that's like our breakfast. We don't really eat anything to lunch. So it works for us. If I'm getting fancy, I'll put like turmeric in it or ginger powder or like a piece of ginger if I have some. Nice. Or whatever. Nice. We can get a little fancy with it. But for the most part, like today, yesterday I had leftover pineapples. So I put some pineapple oh, in it. Oh, that'd be good too. You know, but that's like extra. That's like. <laughs> that's the fancy day. That's the fancy day. So the, all the other days, it's just like, this is our basic. Get it down. I got my serving of greens in. I got my serving of protein in. And, you know, I've got energy and I'm good to go. So. And that like simplicity will serve you postpartum because exactly time is going to be serving me in life because everyone's yeah. busy. So it's like, how do you, yeah. how do you actually get your nutrients in? Yeah. Without so that like, been, yeah, it's been a game changer for us. And then another ritual we have is like, we walk our dog every day. And so we try to do it together. I'm usually like, I was for a while, I was like the main one walking the dog, but we do try to do it together and we try our best to not make it like screen time. Mm, Occasionally I'll take out my phone to like take a picture of him, my dog, because he's super cute. But like, (laughs) you know, like for me, especially I'm like big on like, let's make this walk no screen time if possible, because we're actually getting out of the house. Like, let's look at nature. Let's look at trees together, connect. Yeah. Yeah, Spend time together, talk, catch up. If we're together, even if I'm alone, I'm like, just focus your eyes out into the world. (laughs) Like you've been on a screen all day. And then the third one I was thinking of recently, what am I doing? And one of the ways that I like to chill out at night is to do like a puzzle, like a word, word puzzle or like a Sudoku or something. Oh, nice. Like a brain so, teaser or something. Yeah. It just yeah. like helps me take my mind off of like the problems of the day into like a very solvable problem that is like non-consequential. Well, and it's almost like meditation meditative because it is in a way right like presence and focus focus yeah yeah and I do meditate and all this stuff but I don't it's not like for me it's part of the day rather than like I sit down like a separate ritual yeah it's not a separate ritual so for me like this if you're talking about like a separate ritual at the end of the day I'm like oh I've been thinking about all these crazy things like problems of whatever the day let me just refocus my mind onto something a fun problem that I can solve in like a matter of minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Give yourself those small wins because right, it's, it's so true. <laughs> I never, I never actually thought about it that way. And I, I think that just was like an aha moment for me because it is about giving yourself those small wins. Right. That little dopamine hit. Yeah. And, if you, and it's also like, if you don't solve it, it's like not the end of the world. Don't care. It's like, I'm so not attached to solving it. Yeah, it's not like a competitive thing. You're just literally doing it. Together. It doesn't follow me. I'm Unwind. not like, oh, I didn't solve the puzzle. Like the next day, there's a new puzzle. I don't know. 
That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So if you win, it gives you the hit. And if you lose, there's like no downside. There's no downfall. Exactly. Well, and like most of us are getting our hits from like TV, social media, screens, and like all this other stuff that's like glitzy. But it like- is on my screen, I will say. I use the New York Times app, but it's okay but like now I'm thinking of like oh I should get myself a book of like Sudoku I can yeah do, like, get yourself a book yeah. especially like I was thinking during like late night feeds or like when you're ba- when you're rocking your baby sometimes like holding a phone it's just so bright mm. and it keeps you awake so when you're ready to go to bed when baby's asleep you're oh, still yeah. awake and then it becomes problematic because you're like I just want to sleep, but I'm like wired now from like screens. So unless your, unless your screen has like a really low light setting and stuff, but sometimes it can be helpful to just have a piece of paper and a pen or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I'll probably buy a little book book to keep. Yeah. One of those like flip notebooks. (laughs) Exactly. One of those flip notebooks. I have like a million notebooks. Don't even look at my desk right now. It's (laughs) just a disaster. This is like, I took the last two weeks of the year off, partly just to relax with my family, but also to like clean all the cleaning and odd jobs done that I've like not done all year yeah um start the year fresh and then let's see how long it actually lasts okay so tell me what's something that you're really passionate about right now yeah this one was a little harder for me but I guess like preparing for this birth and the baby actually right so that's the biggest thing but it's funny because I feel like you know I was really burnt out at the beginning of this year, like so badly that it took me at least six weeks of the first year to open my laptop. And like, yeah. And then like, as the year I've taken it really slow, I think the pregnancy has given me permission to go slow, especially I was so fatigued the first trimester. I like legit couldn't do anything. I was just like constantly sleeping. And I think that like now I've gotten to a point where I'm like re-inspired by my work. So it's like so funny, like odd timing, but just as I'm about to take maternity leave, I'm like feeling inspired about my work again. But I guess it's good. It like will not be coming back like afterwards, exactly. you know? And yeah. like, I do think that pregnancy does give us permission to slow down. And if we're listening to our bodies, we actually slow mm-hmm. down. I, I didn't listen to my body with my first, with my second I did. And it was a lot better pregnancy. Yeah. There's like I think all that's these honestly partially why I've had a relatively smooth pregnancy so far is because- I did fully give in to like giving myself permission to do what I need to like cancel meetings as I needed to cancel meetings, just take on less projects, just keep stress levels really low. And what's funny is like this last month has probably been the most stressful, like all of November. I had like multiple projects going on at the same time. And and I was like, this has been the most stressful and it is showing up in my body now so hopefully now that I'm taking like some weeks off it'll like I think that'll help to unwind yeah exactly my first was a week past you know the due date the due date which is like a guess anyways but I I I worked till 38 weeks as well and the last two weeks I was like you know baking food prep got everything done and then I was done after like a week of that and then I still had like two extra weeks to chill yeah so I'm I'm like somewhere as we're talking, I'm somewhere between 35 and 36 weeks. So I'm like, today is like my last official working day. I'm giving myself it's time. Good for you. Yeah. Because, yeah. Cause I was like, and I want to end on a fun note. I was like, oh, I'll do a like, <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, there are things that are always to be done when you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, I still have to do my taxes and I still have to like so all the odd stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All the odd jobs of, of like your entrepreneurship, but like no pressure, no deadlines, no launches, no, like, you know, yeah, I have to do X, Y, Z deadline things. So it's yeah. like, 
it's like the fun stuff that you can do but if you don't do it's okay too yeah like if I have time and energy I'll do it and if I don't it's not the end of the world it'll be there that's awesome okay so if you could change one thing about the world what would you change Oh my God, this was like the hardest question. What wouldn't you? I mean, there's a okay, lot of so things about the world. Last year, I didn't ask that question. It was another question. It was, I don't even remember what it was, but this year I added this question because I'm like, I feel like this, it really speaks to like, first of all, a person's value system, but also like if we could literally go and change all these things, like how much better would the world be? Like I always okay. love hearing people's answers. So inequality was the first thing that comes to mind. I'm like, that's a huge ask, inequality. If I could change yeah, inequality, yeah. I would. But also more, I, then I was like, okay, well, more realistically, what's like a media issue that kind of leads into inequality? And here's the biggest one I'm noticing these days is there's just a huge lack of compassion. People are really lacking in the ability and skill of compassion for each other. And I think because I'm on the internet for my job, I see this constant lack of compassion and understanding of like there's a human behind the the thing that you are screaming at right now and you just don't even care that there's a human being there and I think it goes back to that like people lack humanity when they're so used to especially when you're the oppressor and you're Mm -hmm. more the oppressor it literally takes your humanity away when you can't relate and you can't see other people like humans and that compassion just relates back to that. And I love that. If we could improve people's compassion, just imagine. I think the world would start to change. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, so much of these systems of oppression, they are systemic, but it's also systemically a lack of compassion for each other. Yeah. And if we were like to truly understand what somebody else is going through on all the levels, I don't think that we would be as oppressive maybe it would still exist in some form but yeah you know and I think just that that like ability to be compassionate also means that you're seeing that other person as an equal as a human as fully deserving of all the things that you have or that I have or whatever it is right like the difference between that person and me is like birth essentially like (laughs) luck of the draw for a lot of it yeah it's like her body they were born into Whatever body, whatever community, whatever socioeconomic status, whatever family craziness, all of the things, so much of it is like luck of the draw. And if you can see that the person is still deserving and a human, if they were in different circumstances and had different resources, and even like the, I say luck of the draw, even like your internal resiliency that you're born with, I think you can, you can cultivate some, right? But like some people are born with a different level of resiliency than others. Like that's luck. Yeah. And if you could see that and then expect like have different expectations for people, like not everybody, because I think people who are really resilient, like lack compassion, they just don't get it. Like you were just born, you were lucky that you were born with that. Not everyone gets that. I was talking to a friend, uh, a colleague, and she was like, you know, I have never experienced any traumas, right? Like, you know, there's like the ACE, like the adverse childhood events and yeah, stuff. Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of us were talking about ours and we were like, you know, these are some of the dramas that we've experienced and it's made me more of a compassionate person. And, um, and she was like, you know, I've never experienced that, but I still feel like I'm compassionate. And I'm like, it's interesting that you say that because I don't actually think you are. I didn't say this to her, but I was like, you're not actually compassionate because Mm -hmm. 
in many ways, you just don't get it because you were born with this loving parents and, you know, the support system, you're the dominant race, you were wealthy, you got to travel the world because you're wealthy and all this other stuff. And you think you're compassionate, but being compassionate is not determined by the person. It's determined by the other people in response to you, right? Yeah. So I don't get to call myself compassionate. <laughs> it's the people I'm working with, the people who are around me who would, you know, describe me as so or not. And so it was very interesting to see how people think of themselves as resilient or compassionate. And I'm like, we all like to think of ourselves as good though. Like that's yes. inherent in everyone's head. Even Hitler thought he was a good person. Oh, you know what I mean? So true. Like in that's his so mind, true. he was a good person. Doing he was the doing right the right thing. thing. Yeah. Wow. Right. So like everyone has this narrative of like, I'm a good person. And the reality is that we're, we're all on the spectrum. Then we're neither good nor bad. We just do both. Our behaviors are good or bad or. Right. Yeah. And hopefully we start to see the response in the world and, and change it towards something that makes people all like more, more of humanity better rather than worse. And I think that so. compassion is like an aspirational goal. There's no like, oh, yeah. I'm compassionate now. And I think that was that message that I was getting from her. She was like, oh, I'm, I'm a very compassionate person. And I'm like, are you, or are you, could you be more compassionate? Cause I'm not saying she's not, she absolutely is from like a global, you know, overall perspective, yeah. but it's just like, that's giving yourself a checkbox. Like I'm done. I'm done. My I'm job. Done. It's over. As opposed to like, this is like a continuous this is co- goal and practice because we're like, when we're like, we're in pain. Yeah. We lack compassion for other people because we're just thinking about our own pain. Whatever yeah. the type of pain that is physical, emotional, mental, right? Like all that stuff. So it's like, totally. yeah, there are moments where I'm like, I've looked back and been like, ah, oh, I did terrible today at that. Or like, I did really well at that today. Like, I know. Knows? good job. Keep it up. You know, like, exactly. And yeah. But I think if we were trying to make the world a more equal place, that would be the skill that I would want everyone to kind of have. I'd give everybody the skill of compassion. And I have two kids. My daughter is far more compassionate naturally than my second. I don't know if it's because she's the older child or like more the responsible person or like whatnot. Or just her nature. Who knows? Just her nature. Who knows why people are born? You know, maybe because of my pregnancy with her was very stressful and she absorbed some of that like ability to relate. And like, there's so many reasons and things we might consider, but people are born sometimes more compassionate or empathetic, but Mm -hmm. it's a skill that we can all cultivate and continue to improve on. So thank you. I really like And family dynamic. Like it's so interesting because my husband's family just generally, it's a joke. It's a joke. My yeah. brother-in-law calls them the Lannisters because it's like they have trouble expressing their money. They're very sweet people. They are, they're very sweet. They're very kind. And they have trouble expressing emotion, right? Just like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of families do. Yeah. And so like, and for my husband in particular, I remember like being compassionate didn't come naturally to him. Mm. And so. Yeah. If it like, wasn't shown to you as well as a kid or like not even not shown to you, but like if, if it wasn't outwardly expressed, you don't have as much, as much, and as many years practicing and it can be hard. Yeah. And I think for him, like, again, cause I grew up in such a loving environment. Like you said, it's harder to understand folks who didn't when you did Yeah, that being married to me and loving me and being me being very imperfect was like a crash course in having to have yeah. compassion for somebody who is not like you, who cannot show up in the same way that you show up in the world. 
either externally or internally. Mm-hmm. And does that mean that you're going to choose to not love this person? And what does love mean to you? Love that. You know, so like a lot of deep questions there. A that... lot of deep questions. And I also do think that like, um, I see it in the daycare system already. Girls are more encouraged to be compassionate than boys. Boys are like screaming, hitting, you know, making a big mess. And they're just allowed to do that. And girls are like, oh, did you see how she is? Did you like, it's encouraged the judgment and like the caring for the dolls. So even if the girl innately didn't want to do that, she's kind of nudged towards that direction. And I see it like literally starting age, like 18 months onwards. And I'm like, people are also socialized to be more compassionate or not being more compassionate. Mm -hmm. So because I have a boy, I'm like, I'm constantly working on that with him because society is not going to, the school system, society is not going to be encouraging that of him. Let's put it that way. It's one of the things that is worrying me as having a, having a male is like. I know, but he gets to learn from you. Right. And I think that's. I think that is beautiful. It's like, first I was like, I want two girls, right? And then when I had a boy, I was like, okay, like this is going to be different. But like, yeah. I just really, you know, he brings so much joy and like laughter and adventure. I think it's, I think it's what I need probably in my life because I grew like thinking about it. The reason I have so much anxiety around it is because it's such a foreign concept. I grew up with a sister. Uh, I didn't have a lot of male figures in my life. Yeah, you know what I mean? So it's like very unfamiliar to me. And in a way it's good because maybe I don't have like as many stereotypes attached to it. Like yeah. it has to be this way or it has to be. There's no like, well, my brother was like this or my whatever, whatever right. was like this. So like there's less, there's less like rigidity. Like, you're his mother, right? So it's like yeah. you control the dynamic. Like yeah. you determine what goes on in the house, like the both the parents. But yeah, that's where I'm like, you know what, whatever goes on in the outside world, I can't control. But like, I and even my husband my had kids. a sister. So I feel like for him too, internally within the family, he was like around girls. Yeah, like he had, he had friends or whatever. But like, it's just very interesting. <laughs> I think it's just like a foreign concept. Like, what is this child going to be like? And I think too, like, as a girl, like I have so many female friends. So I was like, oh, like, I'm gonna have a boy kid. Like, I'm just thinking like immediately teenage years, right? But I'm like, you know what? That's a long ways away. Let's focus oh, on. Oh, I'm thinking immediately like different body parts. Yeah. That, I mean, that too, but like, it's like, actually what, really how does nice. This all work? It's a whole new system. Cleaning a boy, baby, and a girl, it is a lot easier to clean a boy. Is it? Everyone says it's the opposite because, like, you know, the pee, the poo doesn't get stuck in the vulva. Oh, but that is, it can be a, a huge mess. In terms of peeing. Like they would say, like when you're changing a diaper, the pee on a male goes like. I think we got sprayed twice. I okay. never did. My husband did. I was like, haha. I'm like, he knows not to not to pee on his mother. But yeah, you essentially just point the penis down and like cover up with the the new yeah. diaper right away. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they learn quickly, that- right? Because it's cold when their bums are naked, so they don't want to pee in the cold because they're you know when you're cold, your like pelvic floor tightens up. Mm-hmm. so um anyways didn't happen to us as, as much every ch- child is different though. yeah but the whole like equipment thing I'm like okay there's gonna probably there's different equipment you know like gotta learn about it in a way that I never thought I'd have to learn about so um yeah that's it's just, so true it's totally yeah. different totally different yeah um but yeah, and that brings me to my last question. What do you feel is your biggest strength? I often ask, what do you feel is your mom's strength? And I feel like you're already a mother when you're pregnant. So I can ask you that too. What do you feel like is your biggest strength or mom's strength? 
I had to think about this one a lot because I don't know, like how these questions are so weird, but I will say one thing I'm proud of myself about is that I have done a lot of work to resolve so much of my childhood trauma. Mm. And I don't think I could be, I wouldn't, 10 years ago, I didn't want kids. Five years ago, it was like, meh. And I think because it took me, like I did all this work in resolving so much of my childhood trauma and setting boundaries in my life and being firm with them and knowing my why and all of this stuff that like it got to a point where I was like, and I'm not saying everybody, by the way, who has childhood trauma, if you just resolve it, you want to be a parent. I don't think that that's true either. But I'm just saying in my case, a lot of things fell into place. But one of the pieces was having really confronted my childhood trauma in like an intense way that I don't feel bitter about it. And I don't carry like, like I can talk about it objectively. This is how things work. Like, and then the, you know what I mean? And so like, because I'm not like so triggered about it and because my boundaries are really good. And so I don't get re-triggered about it. It gives me a lot of hope in terms of the type of parent I think I will, I can be, I have the capacity to be potentially again, not perfect, but like, I don't think I would, you know, one of my biggest fears about being a parent was like, am I going to just be reactively passing this stuff on? And as somebody who didn't start working on my own traumas until after I had kids, mm-hmm. I'm, I know for a fact, you're going to be so far ahead of that. Be, having a, uh, children is triggering in many ways, because you don't even realize why it's triggering because, you know, especially as a kid, if, you know, things happen, you don't, you're not actively like aware of it, but then your children cry or they scream about something or some kind of situation happens and your body goes into this like mode and that was what I was working on with my therapist is not being in a reactive mode and I feel like if you've already done a lot of the work it is going to be so much better for you as a mom as a parent as a person I mean it starts as a partner partner. I'm in a partnership so like this has been ongoing like you know it's not like new it shows up in your partnerships and of course any stressful situation it comes up so it's like 10 years of work in a partnership And like, this is, I mean, this sounds crazy to people who don't have pets, but like we have a dog, right? Our dog is extremely needy. It has, he's like already changed our lives in so many ways for the better. Right. But like, it's like a mini, (laughs) a mini course on like patience and practice, which is good. Right. And it's like, but I'm like, oh, it gives me hope that like, you know, when the dog does something bad, the tendency from what I learned was to just scream. And I'm really like proud of myself that I actually have this compassion for my for my pet that says that tells me he has no idea what the f I'm upset about he has no idea and the fact that I can like relate that skill and be like like, how am I going to handle this knowing that this creature has no idea what they did wrong does not understand why I'm upset what's the best course of action to do to to like change what I or get the outcome I want love that right that's like a completely different skill that like my parents did not have no I know and I feel that that's probably one of the most important ways to prepare for a child is the years of work that you've done yeah Um, it's not the registry even the book that you're reading it's not even that I think it's what you are have already done 
And it's work that I wish that I knew I needed to do because I didn't know until after I had kids. And, um, you know, for anyone listening who's like, oh, when's the right time? I always say like, when's the right time to go to therapy? I'm like, as early as you can, whenever you're ready, but like as early, you don't have to wait till after you have kids or like after you have postpartum depression or after. Yeah. You can earlier. Go, I mean, you know, earlier I, and better. one of the things about my husband and I is like, we had a rocky start to our relationship. Like we, we had the honeymoon period. And then right after that was a very rocky period. And we got engaged very quickly and married very quickly. And so we had, ah. we had to put in the work. And so we did therapy very early on. And like, not, we don't continue with therapy now, but for us, like, it's also different, different therapists handle things very differently also. But I will say like, our therapist was very like, did not want to hear us complain for more than five minutes. She was great. She was an older Jewish woman and she would be like, I got the picture enough already. <laughs> what we're going to do about it. This is your action steps. Here's your homework. And I hated her in the beginning. I was like, this woman doesn't listen. Well, I just really was upset with her. I thought about quitting therapy. And now in retrospect, I'm like, she was the best freaking therapist. She's what I've, you needed. She's what I needed. She just said it like it is. She heard my complaints. She was like, already knew what the root issues were. And was she's like, probably so used to seeing the same pattern show up in relationships. Yeah, for sure. Too. And she's like, this is not unsalvageable. This is like very like fixable problems. What you have is like normal, normal like stuff that couples go through. And so she would explain it in very like matter of fact terms. Like she's like, you got married too much. You didn't get married enough. Like that type of thing. And then she's like, this is how time works when you're in a couple. Like she's very matter of fact things. Oh my gosh. She she's sounds like, you're awesome. a yoga teacher. You should know better. <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh, I'm being handed to here really did hand it to me she really handed to both of us we both got our asses kicked but I will say that like it was so necessary and it set us up for success and I'm not saying again it's a process not like oh we did therapy yeah but it's, it's, like, it's not like a checkbox it's like a, a work in progress but like it's even fair. now we talk about like well remember that's not fair you're not fighting fair right you know like you know the rules. You don't get to do this and then me like hold me to a different standard. You have to we have to hold each other to the same standard. Right. So like the concepts from therapy continue to come up a decade later. You know, that's, what I mean? awesome. that's awesome. And it really goes to show that like it's not about just signing up for something, whether it's therapy or whatever it is. It's you also putting in the work yourself. Yeah. Um, sure. And and like so, like um, what's the word? doing that for you because ultimately you're not doing it for your therapist you're doing that for yourself and you're and and no therapist life. can fix your problem yeah. no therapist can fix your problem. they can give you tools but if you don't use them yes yeah you know that's not is there they can't they can force you it's just like fitness yeah, right it's like, like fitness. It's, it's like a trainer people a trainer like, can tell you what to and do. I'm like, give you the well, exercise, but if you don't do it you know exactly okay so, where can people, find, can, can you share some of your work? Um, you know, you shared your yoga is dead podcast. I'll share the link to that. Can you share your ebook? Um, your yeah. The original Godmothers of yoga. So proud of that. Um, amazing book. If you're into like history of yoga and wanting to know the diversity of all the different lineages, I mean, it's still Very limited, cool. but like just, it opens your eyes as to how many different kinds of ways there are to practice yoga. Um, so I, you know, ebook, definitely check it out. And then for my own personal work, aside from the Yoga Zed podcast, you can find me at Yoga Walla on Instagram. And I'm sure you'll put in the link 
for the, yeah, with the curriculum. I'll add the link. And I do have a website, but I would say like my link tree on my Instagram is actually like the most up to date on terms of projects that I'm doing. So if you're looking to see what I'm up to, like check out my Instagram and check out the link tree. And you have a workshop too, right? And what do you act against appropriation? Oh yeah. So on the podcast, we have a digital version of our act against appropriation workshop. It's a replay. It's a one hour replay from um, a conference, a presentation we gave at a conference and it's like, in, not to toot my own horn and mine and Thagel's own horn, toot but it, I would, toot I would it. say that it's, it's unique in, in the way that we lay out like a very matter of fact, informative way of like what appropriation actually is and the ways it shows up and the ways it creates harm. Because I think sometimes like personal storytelling is great and we do that and we do that on the podcast and I think so many more people are starting to do that and it's amazing but one of the one of the things I see I don't see really out there laid out clearly is like why is this thing really that a big deal like why how is it really showing up as harm like is it just hurting people's feelings and it's like no it's actually going it's not just that it hurts people's feelings it actually creates systemic harm and it creates harm on a larger level and it contributes to racism it's not just like okay well I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt but yeah because I think that's how it comes out to a lot of the times it's like oh I shouldn't use this word because mm, you might be upset by it I'm like no it goes beyond that and I right I'm gonna um, definitely share that podcast or that um, workshop link because actually something that you share talk about a lot is the difference between like appropriation and appreciation so people don't understand that they think that they're not appropriating when they are and it's one of the things that often goes missed is like the financial gains right it's like who's gaining financial who benefits who's benefiting benefit. who does it cost and who's the benefit and I think like again there are some misconceptions like this showed up recently on uh my Instagram because like something I posted got shared a lot so like some strangers were coming to my page and they're like they thought cultural appropriation is like possessiveness over your culture like nobody else should be able to practice it like tribalism they called it and I was like no that's not what's happening here it's it's again looking at winners and losers who's the winner in the situation and who's the loser and why do we even have a dynamic of winners and losers to begin with yeah right yeah and in other practices I always think about it like if I was to take an African tribal dance workshop and I loved it. And I keep attending. I'm not going to then go teach teach it. Right. And profit off of it. Because it's not mine to teach. And that makes so much sense. Indigenous drum circle. Whatever it is. But then and yoga. And it's not yours to teach it. because you haven't put in the work to really understand the cultural. No. Underlying cultural assumptions. The actual context. You know, there's so many facets. There's so much history. It. And like. There's so and many facets also, of it. And then again, like who's winning and who's losing? Like, what? who are you taking away from? Yeah, whose money am I, who's not making the money that they could be making because I'm now teaching it. Right. And it's, to me, that's like so like clear. But then when it comes to yoga, I think because it's been so diluted or not even diluted, but like so removed from like the South Asian diaspora that it's, people don't even think about it in the same way because they just think it's something that white folks created. And it's and fitness. It, and it's fitness. And it's just a trend or like Pilates and like, or whatnot. And again, in that, one of the things we talk about is like, well, what happens when it changes context? And it's the harm that's created is that it now has to fit into this new ideology. And 
there's a lot of beautiful things lost in translation that harms everybody. Like, for example, when you turn and I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying you should never teach yoga as fitness or yoga asana alone. I think if you're transparent about what you're teaching and why you're offering it in that way, that's fine. I think it's fine to be like, I'm an asana teacher and this is what I focus on, but this is not the entirety of Of what this practice is, right? But I do think that one thing that gets lost is there's already aerobics, there's already calisthenics, there's already all of these other fitness modalities. And what you're losing in the process is all of the the mindfulness connections, the mind-body connections, the way that you can integrate the somatic experience into the rest of your layers of your life and the layers of self. And when you take that out, everybody loses. Everybody loses because now we've lost an option in terms of the ways that we can apply ourselves in the world, right? Because again, calisthenics exists, aerobics exists. Yeah, just so movement why are and stretching is not any new, I know. Yeah. So why are we trying to make this thing an apple into an orange? Why can't we just have apples and oranges? Yeah. Right? It's like you've just lost choice when you've tried to convert this apple into an orange. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point It's like, if you're going to run an asana class, call it that. But I think what happens is that people are, everybody knows yoga is good for your brain, right? Like, oh, so they attend an asana class and they're expecting that that alone is going to be good for their brain. And like, yes, there's exercise benefits and whatnot, but it's not, if it's not being taught from a cultural lens and a perspective of like the whole picture, you're losing out on so much. Um and then it's just movement, you know, it's, it's, it's no like, again, if you're trying to convert and I think the food analogy is great, right? Because like some people like apples, some people like oranges and some people like fruit salad. And the whole thing is like, if you're trying to take an orange and turn it into an apple, like why? Yeah. When you can just have both or have the one you like. Yeah. Like, what's the point of that? Like you, again, you're eliminating your own options and choice, choice. and variety when you are trying to make the apple into an orange. And I think it's the same thing with yoga like yeah you could eat just the skin of both the fruits or you could just eat the flesh of both the fruits but the reality is the fruits are different and they taste different and they both have value so like why Mm. and this is something that I love that you share on your page so openly with unapologetically too Mm -hmm. because it empowers other people like me and other people who have maybe experience with yoga but have felt silenced a lot of the times in spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is power in just you speaking up because it um, empowers others. So I really have to thank you for that because if it wasn't for people like you doing it, I don't think I would have learned as much. Do you know what I mean? I appreciate Um, that. Because my parents will never understand because they were you know, full grown adults when they came here. So they don't get it. They're like, yeah, of course it's still earth. What are you talking about? They're not going to those classes, right? Whereas like everyone in my generation, they still think yoga is Lululemon leggings and flexibility. And whatever it is, I think this, this needs to be re I've said this before and it needs to be reiterated is that when we're talking about mainstream yoga spaces, we are talking about white centered affinity spaces. Yeah. Because when we talk about yoga in our community, there's no gatekeeping. There's no like, you have to go to a place 
that you charges you money and you have to no. wear these types of clothing and you have to have a mat and you have to, when we're talking about yoga in our community it's like friends and family getting together in community yeah teaching each other you don't need special clothes you don't need special equipment it's like whatever There's is no around. like designated time even sometimes you're just yeah. like like I will we'll be watching tv and my dad will just go sit somewhere and like you know yeah. move or like or do his pranam or whatever like I remember yeah. the first time I learned Kapalabhati was my father teaching me on in a vacation in Hawaii and we're just like hanging around he's like doing his Kapalabhati he's like let me teach you like what this is like okay cool like you know and it's like it's when we talk about mainstream spaces we have to because people get upset they're like oh well why do we need to diversify blah 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 blah. no it all exists already out there what's happening is these mainstream spaces are white centered affinity spaces yeah so we just have to keep that in mind that like we are actually what has happened is people have gone out of their way to create special spaces to make white people feel comfortable that's that's exactly what you just said those same people could have gone to any community center yeah. where yoga is being taught already where events are already taught. happening because it is being taught it is it is being local offered. temple offers every tuesday night exactly free free yoga right exactly and it's and you make a couple friends at the temple and they'll invite you to a bhajan and you go to a bhajan and you'll meet some auntie or uncle that's like does an asana class so yeah, like it's already being offered. I think D- Diane Bondi even talked about it in Toronto where, um, cause she's from the Toronto, greater Toronto area as oh, well. I didn't know that. Yeah. And Diane what? once said in an, something we were in together, Diane once told me that she didn't realize that there was like a South Asian community already doing, oh, she yeah. got invited to something and she's like, oh, y'all have been here doing your own thing. Like, you know? Yeah. We've always been here. It's just, we're not. And the thing is, it's not even like I want to profit off of it. I just. That's the whole point. You don't hear about it because no one's marketing it because it's not a profit, a profit thing. Yeah. That's not why we're doing it. Right. Yeah. But when it's being absorbed by white culture, everything becomes about making a profit off of. I mean, this is like the most clear in the Kundalini community, right? Like they have to create their own separate space in which to practice some version of Sikhism that is obviously like unorthodox, goes against the like the actual religion. But regardless like let's say they believe they were actually Sikh their Sikh temples exist (laughs) but you don't feel comfortable right and you don't feel that welcome because of the way you're practicing against the rules essentially and you decided that you're going to create an affinity space for white folks Mm. as opposed to trying to assimilate into the existing structure and now you make it the burden of people who already have trouble assimilating to assimilate to you Wow. So powerful. And that's, I've been to, we have festivals here, like Taste of India, Festival of India, and there's often a yoga, like yoga thing. And almost always there's a white person with dreads, like so much cultural appropriation and chanting and whatnot, but it seems very inauthentic because all the people attending are also white. The Indian folks are not attending the yoga class because they're like, this isn't, this isn't what we are familiar with. And, you know, they're just like, oh, just free. Let's love each other. And I'm like, this is not yoga. But we have created spaces even within our festivals for these people to exist because that's how 
open and accepting we are. But it's got to go both ways because this is, you know, we shouldn't have to earn our privilege to show up in spaces that was ours to begin with. And that's what's happened, right? And yeah, I I love what you just said. I think that's so powerful. I'm going to have to replay that and listen to that again because it's just... (laughs) It's just so powerful. Yeah. Um, and people need to sit with that discomfort. If you're listening to this, if you're a white yoga teacher and you're listening to this and you're like, oh, sit well, with that discomfort. Because the studio, all the studios, they always, and this, this is the intent, sincere intention, I think, of most yoga businesses. The sincere intention is all is all are welcome. You know, I've, we've t- I've talked about this extensively, but that's, I people don't say that without actually trying to mean it the reality but they don't understand all the levels of interplay of what that means and when you open up a yoga business it's a mainstream yoga business a studio in a gentrified neighborhood especially and you're charging money now at the door and all of the things and it's a business what has happened is you've accidentally created a white centered affinity space yeah whether you meant to or not and so you got to sit with that and what that means you know, for you as a business owner, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, you shouldn't have a business. You should have done. I'm just saying all of us are in this place of sitting with our roles as both the oppressor and the oppressee, right? Right. What does that mean for you? And it's going to be different for every, the answer is going to be different for each person. And I think that when you actually do that work, that's when you kind of transform right and you you yeah. become a better more compassionate individual yeah um and the answer actually... for you today it might look different for you the answer from 10 years from now right because right? your journey will evolve that's one of my goals is to actually go to india and learn from like an indian place but i'm curious what you thought about your yoga we'll talk about it after but about your yoga teacher training that you did in india um, I have mixed feelings. I'll just say that. Like we, yeah. I don't, we don't need to get into it, but I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. Yeah. And where can, so best people, best place for people to find you is on Instagram. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Okay. At Yoga Wala. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds good. And I'm going to share all the links in the show notes, including the ebook, the workshop, some email resources uh, on decal. And I love that you have a decolonized yoga playlist. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank you so much, Jaisal, for your time and your passion that comes through so clearly. I've already learned so much from you. And I know that my audience will learn even more. I think you're going to make an amazing, incredible mother and compassionate human being that is literally changing, changing the world. Thanks so much for listening. Please share this podcast with anyone who practices yoga, who teaches yoga, appreciates yoga, or anybody who just wants to learn more about this. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links, and we'll chat again real soon.